Praise God. John chapter 7. We are working our way through fourth gospel together. I hope you're participating in the 75th anniversary trivia challenge. If you do not know what that is, go back and look at your emails, Pastor Steve's videos, and find out. There's a couple questions in there about the history of our, our pastors. And one of the questions has to do with uh, who won the most pastors' cook-offs. Ooh, right? Well, uh, there should be one in there about which pastor is the best dressed historically. We all know the answer would be me. But if Pastor Steve keeps buying jackets like he's wearing this morning, I am going to fall into a quick second place here. So... Bro, that is the classiest I've ever seen you look, and I've known you for a while. I like that. I want you to take it off, bro. It's getting hot anyway. Anyway, so as of this morning, Pastor Tim's still the best dressed until the survey's taken. Um, it looks like a lot of you have, you have vitamin D emanating from your faces. Someone's been in Florida. A lot of you have been in Florida, it seems. Um, way to get vitamin D enriched. It's good to see some of you back in church who haven't been here for a few weeks because of health matters. So good to have you back today. And I know, I'm pretty confident, uh, you're glad to be back and encouraged uh, to be back. Pastor Steve, while you were given our little challenge this morning in relationship to the aspect of giving and worship, I've always wondered as a pastor, because I grew up as a pastor's kid, I've been actually in this church for 51 years, and um, I know I don't look that old, it's, it's our, but, it's, but it's been 51 years. Um, I'm way too full of myself this morning, I need to... We need to pray again and make sure that God's going to be heard today. But as you're giving your challenge, it was, it was just something I was just praying over while you were giving it, because giving is an act, aspect of worship. And I thought, wow, if we all could give as energetically as we've just sung. Amen. But then whenever a pastor makes that statement, not a lot of people say amen. Amen. <laughs> It's a bizarre thing, isn't it? Yes. It's like we can pray loud, we can preach loud, we can sing loud, we can break bread together passionately, right? We can do all these things, and it's like, let's give just as excitedly, and it's like, crickets. <laughs> I hope someday, because you're great people, that your energy to give back to the Lord for great commission purposes is as equal as your energy in singing. Amen. It's all his anyway. It ain't yours. It ain't mine. Right? And Jesus paid it some, right? Yeah. 
He paid it all, all to him I owe. Right? This church has a very clear mission statement. Everything that's God's is given to God's mission statement. This is not about money anymore that it's about singing. It's about worship unto him. And my friends, the world is passionate about their mission. Aren't they? Aren't they? How passionate? Like screamy passionate. Like deliriously passionate. May we outpace them in our passion. So I was thinking, this week, I'm going to do a little matching system in my personal giving. Every time I buy a coffee, I'm going to give just as much to the Lord. Every time I go through a drive-thru, I'm going to match it and give to the Lord. Every time I take my family out to dinner, I'm going to get my phone out and I'm going to match it and give to the Lord. All right? If you're having an $800 or $1,000 birthday party for your kid, which ain't cheap anymore these days, but it's pretty common, which blows my mind, maybe consider matching that to the Lord. If you can give that to your kid who's finite, how much more can we give to the Lord who's infinite? See, still crickets. <laughs> Just think about it, everybody. Think about it. You don't have a problem writing a $5,000 check to go on vacation and you come back and he's like, oh, I'm dirt poor, I can't give to the Lord. Well, think about it then. This is not rocket science as they say. Trust me, the world is out giving us unto their mission. They just are, because they don't think twice about it. They don't think twice about it. They do this in their sleep. How much more us? Okay, how much more us? The Lord loves a, what kind of giver? Let's give as joyfully as we sing. Amen. Happy, happy, happy. Happiest people in the world. All right. So, maybe I can challenge you to do the same. Amen. Some of you say, Pastor Tim, you don't know my Starbucks budget. I'll give myself broke. Well, then do this. For every time you want to go through the Starbucks drive-thru to get your five-buck drink, right? Maybe don't do it and give five bucks to the Lord. Instead, if you can't do both, do one. Do the one that's a higher priority. I can't live without my latte. <laughs> then I'm sure God will replace that five bucks you give to him if you spend five bucks on a latte. You cannot outgive the Lord, can you? All right? You can't. You can't give your way broke, folks. There's not one believer in Christian history has ever given their way broke. Not one. If it's unto a cause and not a person that's finite, not unto an entity that's finite, if it's unto an eternal cause, Jesus, Jesus is behind that effort. He is with us until the end of the age.
So I suppose I came with a little extra burden this morning. Pastor Steve, it's his fault. He tipped me off again with the dress and the, and the, and the giving. And... But seriously, folks, I, I've just been involved in some things recently among things in our world, and, and I've, I've, I've never seen darkness so passionate about doing dark things. Never in my life. Never in my life. What I've ever imagined about darkness premeditatively working out 50, 100, 200 year plans to achieve their dark goals. I, we, we, should, we should equal and advance that passion, my friends. Amen. Right? For the light of the cause of Christ. And, and this has nothing to do with some TV evangelist who's begging for money unto himself and unto his $30 million jet airplane and unto his $55,000 square foot home. It has nothing to do with that garbage. So it's everything to us doing the will of God for us. And many hands make lighter work. Okay? So don't fear. Don't fear. If the widow can drop her might... And she had nothing left. Certainly we can drop ours because we know we'll have something left. God's good. God's good. Esther, we're praying for you in the loss of your brother. Losing a parent and a sibling in the same year has got to be one of the most difficult things. So can I have three or four ladies just gather with Esther right after the service? We'll let her hubby go get the kids and just pray with her just three ladies four ladies real quick raise your hand all right thank you thank you thank you you know esther find her hug her pray with her and our 38 year old brother obed passed this week all right john 7 1 to 14 let's read this morning After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near, commonly known as the feast of the tabernacles. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not even in his, for not even his brothers, now these were his biological brothers of which Jesus was the eldest, right? Not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify it that its deeds are evil. Now, there's a couple things that really demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and according to the purpose of John's writing, and this is one of them. Jesus knew sovereignly the hearts of men, even the hearts of his brothers. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. 
But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There is much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now we'll read verse 14 because it kind of gives a segue to next week. But when it was now, but when it was now in the middle of the feast, midweek here, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. So when we read chapter 7 over and again, and if you're doing that and you're following along in your personal devotions and in your personal study, a number of you asked me for a handful of commentaries that I was using uh, in this study. The same group of people asked me every time I head into a book study what commentaries are you using, and they go out and they buy them. But if you're with me on that and you're reading through this text and studying through this text, when you read John chapter 7, it appears to me, maybe to you too, that this is a chapter of assessment, a chapter of assessment. Jesus, at the end of his Galilean ministry, he reaches the zenith of his ministry popularity. And for the remainder of his ministry in that region, though, things seem to return to somewhat of a normal pace for some time after the confrontation we saw last week together at the end of chapter 6. While things seem to settle a bit for six months in Galilee, the fury against Christ back in Jerusalem continued to increase. You saw that at the end of verse 1, didn't you? There were still Jews in Jerusalem. Now, when you see the word Jews in this context, that's not all of them. That's the top dogs. The big boys want to kill them. Okay? Hang on to that. So while things are settled for a bit in Galilee, the fury against Christ in Jerusalem continued to increase. And if you'll remember back, we had given somewhat of an overview of chapters 5 through 11, particularly chapters 5 through 7, where the complete dislike and disdain and even disgust for Christ among Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem began to swell, beginning with Jesus' first miracle in the city, which was the healing of the lame man, right, who had been sick for 38 years. Right? Remember, he did that on the Sabbath day, and that ticked the leaders off because of the 39 rules that they had added to Mosaic instruction on how the Sabbath was to be lived. So they want to kill Jesus for something they added to the Bible. Peppered throughout his time in Jerusalem and even a few times during his Galilean ministry, the certainty of the lynch mob growing back in Jerusalem was more and more of a reality. So while Jesus walks for this half year in the Galilean region in relative peace, hatred towards him in Jerusalem continues. So as we come to chapter 7, we move from Galilee to Jerusalem. We find Jesus in a most interesting time in his life. He knows his death is the following year. And that will take place in Jerusalem. Yet he's perfectly observant 
of the Mosaic feasts as the sinless son of God. And if he heads to Jerusalem to participate in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, they're going to seek to kill him before his hour is come. And that would be more than inappropriate as he seeks to do the will of the Father. So in our passage, he proceeds with the wisdom of God. This is really the second indication that he's the son of God here. Not only that he knows the sinful condition of the hearts of lost men and women, but he's very much divinely in tune with God's timing. God's timing as the one who's been sent from heaven. We're not going to be able to cover the whole chapter this week, and we'll certainly seek to finish it next week in between the Lord's Supper and the baptisms. But I'll give you a basic outline here in a moment. But as I said earlier, if you read this chapter over and over again, it seems to be a chapter of assessment. Jesus is coming from one major region of ministry back to another. And John is impressed to leave us with an overview of what's really going on within the Jerusalem walls regarding Jesus as we head back into his final year of ministry on earth. I think it's prudent for us to remember that John chapter 1 through 11 is all given to us within a setting of almost three years. By the time you get to chapters 12 to 21, that encapsulates three days. So half the book is almost three years and and. The other is three days. Nonetheless, let's break up this chapter of assessment the following way. First of all, and we're just going to study this this morning, this is an assessment of the situation. The assessment of the situation. Next week, we'll study the assessment of the character of Christ, and then we'll also conclude with a spiritual assessment of the whole time frame here in relationship of Jesus commencing from his Galilean ministry uh, to his ministry in Jerusalem. So, assessment of situation, character, and spiritual assessment, okay? After these things, look at, you see verse one? After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. We see that phrase often in the Gospel of John because he writes from really a 50,000-foot perspective. Remember, John writes some three decades later after the other three synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not particularly filling gaps with information other writers miss, but he writes in support of his purpose, as we've already stated in John 20, 30, and 31. He does mention something. The other, he, he does mention some things the other gospel writers don't, and again, that's always unto his purpose for writing. Regardless, John writes with an all-consuming passion to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and the signs, the miracles that he writes of, these seven these seven signs are performed to persuade men to believe that he is the son of God and that believing they might have life through his name. You see, it's never good enough just to believe. Remember last week? Come, behold, believe, and you must appropriate that belief by eating and drinking of him. This is not just the surrender of the mind. This is the surrender of the will unto the Lord Jesus Christ. All of him was given for all of you. So the assessment of the situation. This is really an assessment of two things. 
But we'll break down this first point of three in two ways. So as John assesses the situation Jesus is in, we'll clearly see Jesus' divine assessment regarding where he stands at this juncture of his ministry career. So there's a little bit of an assessment of calendar here. Hang on with me. It's important, else it wouldn't have been put in the Bible. So we come to verse 1, after these things. After these things means that we are some six to seven months since we find Jesus in Galilee feeding the 5,000. Jesus has been pretty much ministering almost exclusively to his disciples during this half year. You can simply find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke a more full description and detail about Jesus' Galilean ministry. Those three gospel writers spend, spill a lot of ink on this Galilean ministry, and John spills very little. In this Galilean ministry, other gospel writers tell us that he's been to Tyre and Sidon, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, to the far north in the Galilean region. He's continued to heal, he's continued to teach. The transfiguration not recorded by John occurs during this month, this six-month time frame. He travels to Decapolis, to Galilee, to Caesarea Philippi, and then back to his hometown in Capernaum. So when he says here in verse 1 that he's still walking around Galilee, this would have been about the time of the end of his ministry where he's in his home village. Again, if you study the other synoptics, you'll find the majority of Jesus' time being invested in teaching, really, his band of 12 disciples. For where we find ourselves this morning in John, we're right at the end of this Galilean ministry, uh, which seems to have begun just for us a couple chapters ago. Nonetheless, the words after these things take us to the fall of the same year Jesus fed the 5,000, and we've come to the Feast of Tabernacles, which, felt, which fell in the month of October. There were three major Jewish feasts in the year. You'd think that Passover was the most celebrated of the three, but actually the Feast of Booths was. This is known as the Pilgrimage of the Tabernacles, or in booths. If you want to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible or your device, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 44, and Numbers 29, that's where you get a full description of this particular mandate. If you want a really good description, those of you following along in your commentaries, Hendrickson has the following description of this week of religious celebration. He says it was celebrated from the 15th to the 21st and often into the 22nd of the month, the seventh Jewish month called Tishri. Sometimes the 22nd day of the seventh month, which approximated our October, was had added to it an eighth day of unique, kind of one final gathering in the temple square of all the people that had come to worship and to say their goodbyes before they departed back to their geographic homeland. It was a feast of thanksgiving for the vintage, literally for the harvest. Hendrickson calls it the vintage. But besides a harvest festival, it was a joyful commemoration of the divine guidance granted to the forefathers in their wilderness journey. 
following hard upon the day of atonement, the idea of joy after redemption was naturally very prominent. In a, in a decreased daily scale, a special sacrifice of 75 bullocks was made throughout the week. The temple trumpets were blown on each day. There was a ceremony of the outpouring of water drawn from Siloam in commemoration of the refreshing stream which had come forth miraculously out of the rock of Meribah, as referenced in Exodus chapter 17. And in anticipation of blessings both for Israel and the world, then there was an illumination of the inner court of the temple where the light of the grand candelabra reminded one of the pillar of fire by night which had served as a guide throughout the desert wanderings as Numbers 14 teaches us. There was also a torch parade. And above all, everywhere in, in and around Jerusalem, in the street, the square, even on the roofs of the houses, booths were erected and torches were lit. This, these leafy dwellings provided shelter for the pilgrims who had come from every direction to attend this feast. But most of all, they too were reminders of the wilderness life of their ancestors, as Leviticus 23 teaches us. That's Hendrickson's description of this week. When you think of an ancient city, this would have been quite a sight. Uh, quite a sound. If you are a person that loves the ambiance of light at night, you would have loved this setting. Everywhere you looked and everywhere you walked, you would be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people in for 40 years in the wilderness wandering. Well, that's the assessment of the calendar. Now let's go to an assessment of Jesus's family found here in verses three through five. Playing on Jesus's mosaic obligation. In verse three, his brothers suggest Jesus head up to Jerusalem to make sure he's ahead of the crowd so his followers can see more signs. Well, we've already seen in the passage today that we've read that these are the same brothers of which Jesus was obviously the oldest and they were not yet believers, verse 5 tells us, even as brothers of the Son of God. So immediately we know their motivation for attending the feast would have been different than that of their oldest brother, Jesus. So I think we need to make that clear. Jews who are faithful worshipers, and Jesus' motivation is different than his brothers who were faithful worshipers. What could have been their motivation to have Jesus head up with them or before them to be there on time the first day? The passage tells us it's to meet up with his disciples. His brother says, go on up to Jerusalem. Your disciples await you there. We must understand the 12 disciples, Jesus's faithful band, has been with him throughout all of the Galilean ministry. And when his biological brothers tell him, go up to be with your disciples, he wasn't talking about the 12 because they were with Jesus in a Capernaum here wrapping up the Galilean ministry. 
They were referring to all those followers that had left Jesus at the end of chapter six. And remember, John said that they had left Jesus never to follow him again. Jesus' brothers didn't get the hint. Or maybe they did. Maybe the brothers thought that Jesus could gain his popularity back. Even though he had lost tens of thousands of followers in his Instagram account or his Twitter account, maybe he could take advantage of the largest religious celebration in Jerusalem to gain all of his followers back. Wouldn't that be grand? And get a lot of endorsements because of it. To the brothers, this was a critical moment in the brand development of their big brother. I mean, think of all the little bros stood to gain walking in the shadows of their well-branded big brother. The prophet sent from God. The brother who just six months ago, everyone was pressing on him to be king because he just fed tens of thousands of people from five flatbreads and two small fish. Maybe it's not too late to regain your popularity among those who want to make you our king. Or maybe the brothers know that John, as what John says in verse one, that there were religious leaders still seeking to kill Jesus. Maybe they had caught wind that no one was really talking about Jesus in the city because they feared the religious leaders like themselves, like the passage says we read this morning. I mean, we know what happens to one who crosses the higher-ups in the religious realm. I don't know. Maybe his brothers want Jesus to go up and to get in some trouble. Think about this. I mean, how difficult would it have been even to grow up with Mr. Perfect? Like, literally, the big brother who never did anything wrong. It's already the tendency of people to dig up muck on the life of spiritually conservative people of our town, how, of our time, how much more the Son of God, who for 30 years just perfectly did everything his parents told him to do and worked perfectly in the family business. It even took over the family business for his dad, who died when Jesus was young. He was the consummate, literally perfect big brother. As a carpenter, he never even had to measure twice in order to cut once. Think of how much more quickly he did his work because of that. Right? He always, as a kid, made his bed right. He always cleaned up his room right. He did the dishes without even having to be asked. He was first to the shed to pull out the mower in the spring to start mowing the lawn. And when he was done with everything perfectly. I mean, how many of you guys like straight lines when you mow the lawn? You think about this. Jesus' lines were always linear. Never missed a blade. I mean... Think of even when it would have come time to sit down and play video games with his brothers. Jesus starts alone and the brothers walk in and say, hey, 
You played last night. I should play now. And Jesus gets up, being the perfect peacemaker that he is, and says, please come on in. No worries. You guys, play the, the game Festival of Booze, right? And, and have a ball. Have a good time. I'm just going to go see if mom needs the dishwasher empty. So we go from perfect to goody two-shoes. Could you imagine even if sisters were involved in his family? I could see Jesus telling his sisters that they're beautiful, just like their mom. To us, that sounds really sappy. This just would have been what a perfect guy did. Right? With no pretense. I can see him sitting on the edge of his sister's bed, braiding her hair as she gets ready for a date, telling her how beautiful her locks are. And then he, in a sincere moment, says, look, you're a great sister. You're a best sister. Listen, this guy you're going out with tonight, well, I kind of know what he's already thinking. <laughs> and I, I really don't know how to tell you this, but if dad or mom knew what was in his head, I mean, he'd be dead. So, so just be careful, okay? And, 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 and please remember, I'm always here. I'm on your speed dial if you need me. If you want to call off this date, I'll go out with you. You'll be safer. If you do go out, just make sure he pays for everything. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? The brothers could have wanted Jesus up in Jerusalem just to get his for being that kid, that guy. Sad to think, but they didn't believe in him. And regardless of the situation, they did not want the best for him just for themselves. And that was everybody that had left him. We don't find Jesus' brothers believing in him until after the resurrection and ascension. But thankfully, they did. And by the way, just last week, the Jews sought to pass a law. This is in our time. Just last week, in Jerusalem, Jewish religious leaders sought to pass a law, and I believe were successful, that would prohibit any Christian in Jerusalem from mentioning the name of Jesus as they prepare for the celebration of the Passover. If anyone in Jerusalem over the next few months mentions the name of Jesus, they face arrest and incarceration on the basis equal to our felony. Right? Are they able to enforce that? Absolutely not. But they put out there that which is unenforceable. But times haven't changed. That's what I'm saying, folks. And it comes from the top dogs, not the hoi polloi of the townspeople. Chapter one, chapter seven, verse one says they, they sought to kill him, cancel him. My heart breaks for these sweet souls over there. And they know so much, and yet we find them having no stake in heaven or the kingdom to come. Nonetheless, that's the family situation. Mary heart, Mary's heart must break when she sees the brothers not getting along yet with her older brother. Mary knew who Jesus was. Joseph was probably home with the Lord by now. All these boys in the house and now adults and yet not getting along must have been quite a stress on her. Moms, you know how it would be. She knows so much about Jesus that she's had to tell the unbelieving brothers, but she's had no immediate apparent success. 
So moms, don't feel so bad if your kids just aren't surrendered to Christ yet. Keep playing for the fourth quarter. Love them patiently. Take an example from the model of Jesus' mother. Don't cancel your kids. Live your character. Live the holy life the Lord would have you. Never stop loving. Never stop praying. Always leave the door open. I'm sure Mary finds herself feeling now like she did when the angel told her that she was with child and pregnant with Jesus. Back then she was hiding all these things in her heart, always seeking to stay right, say the right thing at the right time. And of course, I'm, Je I'm sure Jesus helped her with this, but remember, Jesus has been gone for quite a while now in his Galilean ministry. The brothers just wanted Jesus to go fully public, and that word's used three times in chapter 7 in strategic places. You can underline that in your own private reading. They're basically saying, show yourself to the world. Jesus, this is your time for whatever their motivation. Why keep yourself in secret when the whole city wants you to be crowned and revered? Show more signs. Take advantage of the situation. Certainly, the best marketeer would do that. But Jesus knows the hearts of all men. He knows how influential the religious leaders are. Even at the consequence of less intentional followers of Judaism. If anyone speaks up for Jesus, our text said, they'll be canceled in the culture. They're fearful to even mention his name. They'll be silenced, ejected from the temple, membership, possibly even killed. Well, I suppose that's what they would do with a follower of Jesus. Same thing they wanted to do with Jesus. So John moves on now to Jesus' response in verses 6 through 8 that we read earlier. Maybe you notice the word time being used here three times. It's an interesting word. Sometimes Jesus uses the word to teach that his hour of suffering on the cross does not come yet. We see that throughout the book of John. But here the word time is used by Jesus another way. He's simply telling his brothers it may be their time to go up to the feast, but not his. Jesus must not go up ahead of them or even with them. He's following God's schedule. He is God in the flesh. He knows. The Jews would be expecting him to be there early or at minimum on time and be ready for his arrest. Remember, they've been licking their chops for a half a year, planning and plotting various ways to make a scene when Jesus arrives for the Feast of Booths. I mean, literally, the Jewish CIA would have a detailed plan, and the main news stations would have been in place at the entrance gate to the city to capture the footage to show on national news. I mean, unbelief always lurks to arrest and destroy and promote their actions. 
But Jesus says, my time, my literally, my time to go up for this week is not here yet. But your time is always opportune. You should go to the feast. You're a Jew. You go. And you go and be on time. Then Jesus gets deeply specific. He says, the world, hang on with me here. The world cannot hate you. This is this, 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 this statement only the logos of God can make, right? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I do something. When I step into their midst, their sin is exposed. And what is he saying to his brothers? When I step into their midst, your sin, along with the city's sin, is exposed. And the I am the light of the world discourse comes on the heels of the Feast of Booths where light is prominent. Light disseminates through darkness. It exposes dark things. Well, this is the mic drop moment for the brothers. Jesus just associated faithful, religious Jews in Jerusalem having come from all over to celebrate one of Moses' three major feasts in the world. And he has indicted them and their countrymen, including the religious leaders, as pagans. You see, folks, the world always wants power or association with political power, even religious people. But even Jesus knew he came to be savior. They wanted him as king. The religious leaders wanted him dead. It wasn't time for either because he came for save, to be savior. Jesus was completely comfortable with his divine understanding that he would be king for a thousand years in the future. But he was enraptured with only obeying the will of the father for his er first earthly appearance and that was to be the sacrificial lamb that had come to die for the sins of the pagan Jews celebrating the Feast of Booze in Jerusalem. So Jesus calls out the most religious God-worshippers on earth as sinners. And folks, there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who have trusted their, entrusted their lives to Christ and those who haven't. So to be clear, Jesus is just basically saying, it matters not to me that you're Jew or Greek. It matters to me that you're saved or not. Amen. Being a religious leader doesn't elevate one to a closer plane with God just because you have the title pastor, priest, or bishop. Jesus knows the heart. Jesus is the word of God in flesh. He's the eternal, eternal son of God come from heaven numerous times, chapter six. He's completely aware of his own nature and his own purpose. Religious leader or faithful attender of feasts or worship. There is still only two kinds of people in the world, believers or unbelievers. 
So Jesus points out very clearly here that the religious faithful of Jerusalem are sinners. Their deeds are evil. I can remember pretty much every drive I take now, but not long ago I was going through small town America and either hoisted up the flagpoles or draped over the front doors of almost every church in this small town are rainbow flags. The night before one attends church on a Sunday, it could be very likely, one local townsperson told me this, their religious leader who has the flag draped over their front door, attending a local bar, hoisting a few with the people in the community, getting as sauced as the people do. If it's not sexual immorality or drunkenness that saturates the lives of religious leaders, it's at least false teaching. They may stand and preach their neo-orthodoxy and claim they, claim they have some type of self-authority to teach what part of the Bible is true and which part of the Bible isn't. But my friends, if you stand as Jesus stood, compassionate and patient, yet clear as ice, but not just as cold, and tell the religious ones they're just like the world and there's no favor of God upon them because of their position and they're just sinners, what reaction are you most likely to get? And it will not be this, this, any different for us. You can cry, wake up world. Can't you even tell that God only made two sexes? Come on. Can't you tell? Why do you have the authority to pontificate anything else than your creator has pontificated? And you stand in authority and behind pulpits and you wear your rainbow scarves while you proclaim the part of God's word that you say is God's word. And my friends, you're just lost. You're as lost as the people you speak to. It doesn't matter how religious. I'm confident there were no rainbow flags hanging over the temple door in Jerusalem. And yet they were just as lost. Do you hear what I'm saying? Lost is lost and found is found. And Jesus weeps for all of them. He loves all of them. He's not a stinker to any of them. He's not even known as contentious. He just says, you're lost. You need me? That's it. That's it. Everyone's in the same sin pot. No matter how it's stirred by Satan himself. The same Jesus still expected to go up to Jerusalem, and he does because he's a faithful observer of the Mosaic law, a perfect servant of the law. So verse 9 tells us, so having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. By the time we get to verses 10 to 14, Jesus has crept up, more un, 
a more untraveled road to Jerusalem with his disciples. The evening news reports, reporters in the Jewish religious CIA have shut down their operations because they had assumed by this time that Jesus wasn't coming. Now hang on with me here as we wrap up. This is crazy to me. Think of that. Jesus was doomed if he did and doomed if he didn't attend. That's what falsehood does. If he came up right away, he's arrested and killed before the timing of his father. And if he doesn't come, he's labeled a religious rebel because this Jesus doesn't obey Moses. Mercy, what a mess. That's what religious unbelief does. It's what unbelief does, period. It just creates more of a mess out of a mess. My friend, isn't that the way it is for us who serve Jesus today? But it's okay. Because we still take the stand and disposition of our Jesus towards the lost. There's only saved and unsaved. And he came that all would be saved. Anyway, Jesus is now in the city and word begins to spread and the people begin to quietly talk of him and to give their two cents. I just think if folks back in this day had Twitter and it was available to them, right? They'll be making some posts, maybe with some screenshots that, hey, he's here. There's one of his disciples. You know, Jesus must be here. And when they're tweeting, they're saying, well, I give my opinion. This is my opinion, Paul, of who this Jesus is. And the text says, well, I think he's a good man. And another tweets, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And another tweets, I heard him speak on the hillside, on the eastern shore of Galilee, and he actually claimed, I am, oh my, I am the bread of life. And he actually made an appeal to people to follow him. This volley of conversation continued in secret because even the faithful Jews there, unsaved faithful Jews, were in fear of the religious leaders. Verse 13. Jesus doesn't want people living in fear. But unbelief is always fearful. They're always scared. If not for some temporal, certainly eternal reasons, my friends. The same author later writes in 1 John 4, perfect love casts out what? Fear. His love. And then he goes on to say, there is no fear of judgment in this love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life because he is the great I am. And to every religious person here yet in unbelief where Jesus Christ is still merely a great Jewish rabbinical mind of his time, I ask you to submit your heart to him as God who came to die for your sin, 
Do not join the many who walk away never to follow again. Bow your knee to him. Repent of your selfishness and your self-sufficiency and your pride and your wisdom and your knowledge and your creativity and your own way and turn to him. Do it now. Don't wait. You do not know what tomorrow brings. For God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. The hour of our day is so much in need of a text like this. So much in need of the assessment that John gives us in all of chapter 7. And I pray, Lord, as a body, as individuals that make up this body, I pray that we would do just that. That we would assess, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Lord, for those who yet admire Jesus and do not own him as Lord and Savior, may the Spirit of God strike their heart as only he can do, convicting them of sin, their own sin, of righteousness, perfection of Jesus and Lord even of judgment to come there is a day coming Lord of hell and hellfire Jesus doesn't send anyone there it was created for the devil and his angels I pray Lord that the spirit of God would instruct a heart maybe some hearts here this morning that they damn themselves to the lake of fire when they reject Jesus Jesus offers life the Spirit of God have his way regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Bring revival to our church, O Lord. May the pulpits that preach the word of God in our community preach it with conviction and passion. Bring revival to our community. And Lord, as we await your sovereign attendance to that matter, whether it comes or not, as we exist in the middle of this mess, may we do so with the heart set, mindset of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. May we be a joyful people as we rest in him. In Jesus' name, amen.